You're listening to Law, Life, and Culture with Betsy Kim on WNHH LP 103.5 FM. Good afternoon. I'm Betsy Kim, and this is New Haven's 103.5 FM, Law, Life, and Culture. Religion can often help people in choosing how to live their lives and in understanding who they want to be. This can also affect political choices. We're in the studio with Rabbi James Ponat, who for more than three decades served as the Howard H. Holtzman Jewish chaplain of Yale, where he continues to teach as a lecturer, and with Josh Williams, the lead pastor at the Elm City Vineyard Church in New Haven, a non-denominational evangelical church. Both of them are graduates of Yale College. Well, welcome to Law, Life, and Culture. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with Rabbi James Ponat. For you, what is the essence of Judaism? What is it that you believe in that makes you Jewish? Oh, thank you for the two parts to that. I, I must begin by saying, first off, uh, I, it is my sense that there is no essence to Judaism, although there are Jews, such as famously Sigmund Freud, who felt that although he didn't believe in God, didn't believe in the uh, national aspirations of the Jewish people, didn't believe in religious ritual, nonetheless, that he was essentially a Jew. So the notion is carried by many Jews that there's a Jewish essence, but of course, Freud admits he couldn't quite tap it, name it, get to it. It's sort of the uh, navel of the dream. That having been said that there is no essence, there are many forms, and I don't even think there's a single Judaism because there's a dominant Judaism in every age, but there are many forms. So for example, the key key pieces are, are two. Is there a Jewish people, and what is that Jewish people for? Um, and some explanations would say there is no Jewish people, um, except um, those who say this is a Christian belief. The, super, the supersessionist move that Christianity made, started by Jews, it's a form of Judaism as I understand, mm. is um, the Jewish people is humanity. Whoever accepts Christ Jesus as their Savior is an honorary Jew and is thus saved. That's Paul's, uh, who was a Jew, understanding of the Jewish people. The carnal Israel, the physical Jewish people, is of no consequence, um, according to that view. Reform Judaism tried to go that way many years ago, before uh, World War I, World War II, and the Holocaust. Suddenly they realized there was an historical dimension that this empirical Jewish people went through, and it needed to be taken seriously. So what do I believe? I believe that there are about 12, 13, 14 million Jews in the world today, that they live under the traumatic memory of a Holocaust that almost wiped them out, and under the stunning, staggering confusion of a, Jew, a state that claims to be a Jewish state and represent them in the world. However, most Jews in the world don't speak Hebrew. Well, actually, the majority of Jews in the world do speak Hebrew in the language of the state of Israel. Six million Jews live there. Perhaps five or six million live in the United States. The Jews in Israel speak Hebrew. Perhaps another, perhaps another million around the world speak Hebrew. But uh, we don't all have one language. We don't all live in one place. Um, and the question is... Judaism is, this is my, my complex answer, Josh, I'm playing, I'm really mm-hmm. talking to Josh as well as you, Bets, mm-hmm. even though we're, uh, we're sitting here uh, headphoned and, uh, uh, and pleased to be here with you. Uh, I would say that a Judaism, every Judaism, is an attempt to answer, why are there Jews in the world? What are we here to do? What is our responsibility? Some people deduce God when they answer that question. Some Jews don't. But they're all Jews, um, as I understand them, empirically Jews trying to figure out, if they care to, why they are Jews, and they create their Judaism. So there are secular Jews who don't believe in God, but are Jews nonetheless. Freud was, I suppose, one of those who could say, my standing alone outside of civilization enabled me to develop the critique that I have come up with. 
the Jews are a particular people, but my answer to what it is to be human is psychoanalysis. The question is, is psychoanalysis a form of Judaism? Some people say yes, <laughs> some people say no. Well, Pastor Josh Williams, what is it in your beliefs that defines you as a Christian? Mm. Personally, for me, uh, to be defined as a Christian, it means that I've had a certain kind of encounter with the person of Jesus. Uh, and I think that's probably what I'd say is a, maybe a universal description of someone who's a Christian is they've had some kind of encounter, whether that's through a text, through the, what their experience of prayer is. Um, but for me personally, I'd say it's um, a belief that Jesus uh, lived, uh, died, and was resurrected, and that there's something about the resurrection that gives me a kind of inspiration and trust in who Jesus is and what, um, yeah, what that means for my life. And so that resurrection piece means that I believe that Jesus is living in a way, uh, living in me, living in the church, and is still leading us even though his historical life has ended. And so that makes it all already mystical in a certain kind of way. Um, but I believe that kind of wrestling with the encounter of what Christ means to you is it the essence of what it means for someone to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian? For people who have maybe not had that encounter that you've described, I think religion, especially in the belief of Christ and the resurrection, can feel like a very abstract idea. Hmm. For people of that mindset, how is that translated into a practice of how to live one's life as a Christian? That's a great question. Um, I think resurrection, more than uh, thinking about it as a supernatural reality, uh, which you know many Christians believe it is, it's really the belief that uh, death does not have the last say, death does not have the last laugh, um, that there's something beyond that, this kind of life that's eternal life, yes, but that still is like the mystical part of what you're talking about, but also it's a life that in the face of things that look like death and dying now, uh, that life can conquer those things. So a very practical kind of application would be um, people that follow Jesus shouldn't be scared of um, maybe groups, people, situations where death or dying are kind of a prominent description of those things. So you see there's movements of people around the world that might live in areas that are slums or areas that are uh, run down or go to places that are war-torn. And the reason why they do that is because uh, they realize in their faith, death isn't the end. So then why would it be... Uh, what would keep them from being part of those places? Not just for the goal of being close to them and close to suffering, but also to see suffering ultimately be redeemed and transformed into this greater life. That's like an intense way to answer the question, but I feel like that's part of what some followers of Jesus have said. Resurrection for them practically means getting close to places of death and being a presence of love there, knowing that love wins over death in the end. Now, James, I have many friends who say they are not religious, but strongly culturally identify as being Jewish. And I certainly do not mean to make racist sweeping generalizations about swaths of people. Mm -hmm. But as a Korean American, I can identify definitely perhaps stereotypical, but traditional characteristics that I feel are very Korean, you know, such as honoring your parents or being respectful. And of course, these examples extend to many other people in many other self-identifying groups, but interestingly enough, my concept of culturally Korean traits probably stems back to Confucianism, also religious texts. Do you feel there are some core aspects of your personality that make you culturally Jewish, but are also somehow tied to your religious beliefs? Oh, thank you for that. Um, I think there are. But by the way, lurking in the back of my mind is a question you don't need to answer, Josh, but it's it's. It's like, but it has to do with responding to your question, Betsy. 
and that is whether the historical Jesus, the Jew Jesus, mm-hmm. um, the empirical Jesus who did die and who was resurrected but not in the world, but mm-hmm. uh, in the world beyond, or you know, whether that Jewish Jesus has resonance uh, in your practice as an evangelical Christian. Mm-hmm. Because for me, um, there are Jewish traits which are historically created. Um, so, for example, I'm a uh, hyper-intellectual. I love to read, to analyze, to write, and to think. Um, those traits, which Chinese civilization also, uh, and, and Korean civilization uh, also uh, you know, pay homage to, um, are historically driven. I think uh, it has to do with uh, the fact that um, after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70, Judaism became the dominant form of Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, became a Judaism of the text. And it was about reading and, uh, and, uh, and interpreting and applying that text. That was the way that you met God. God was no longer available to you in history. You were living in history. But if you wanted to meet God now, it was going to be through study, through prayer, and through ritual. So, um, so one major trait is uh, the love of language, the love of speech, the love of, uh, the love of thinking. Another trait, I would say, uh, is uh, a sense that... Um, uh, and here, I'm actually close to Josh, um, that uh, we are a people that should not be. We are an improbability. Mm-hmm. We survived most recently a, uh, a near genocide. One third of us were eliminated. Our numbers have never fully recouped. Um, mm-hmm. um, Yiddish civilization was almost completely destroyed. Hebrew became the dominant language now. Uh, Israel does represent a resurrection in history of a, a people that was almost wiped out. And so the modern drama... Uh, is compelling to me. I note that the line uh, from Song of Songs, which is dominant in my Jewish thinking, is, for love is as strong as death. Azach mavet ahava. And what I hear in that, slightly different from what uh, I heard you say, Josh, not that love defeats death, but that love is as strong as death. Mm. And therefore, in some sense, the choice in our lives is to choose death and its reality, and mm-hmm. you and I agree that's a mistake, uh, or love. Mm-hmm. But in choosing love, it doesn't mean that I escape dying. Mm-hmm. The resurrection of the Christ, as I envision it, um, uh, because I also belong to a tradition that believes in resurrection. Mm-hmm. When you haven't seen a friend in one year or more, mm-hmm. and you suddenly see that friend, there's a prayer that the tradition mandates that you say. That prayer is, you are the source of blessing who resurrects the dead. Mm-hmm. So the experience, not of a friend who I thought was dead, but a part of me that awakens in the presence of the friend that I didn't even know had died, yeah. So the experience of rebirth and of resurrection, I think, is precious mm-hmm. and part of our day-to-day lives. Uh, and that's also part of uh, an experience that I'm open to as a Jew, a people of resurrection. So, Josh, would you like to respond to some of Jane's comments before I ask you the next question? Yeah. Um, I think that's a great question and just point to bring up that, obviously, Jesus is from a Jewish culture, is a Jewish person, um, has habits, culture, And one of the questions is, in following Jesus, do modern-day Christians pay homage to that? Do they embody any of that? And I think the answer is yes and no. Um, I think in some ways they do. And for you to think about asking me personally, um, I definitely am shaped by that because I think practices of prayer, practices of Sabbath-keeping that I try to do, certainly not in the same way that the Jewish tradition does it, but at least honoring it and marking that and saying there is something important to me about not working uh, on, uh, for me, it's a Monday, I, I change the day, is Sunday is you know, a day where I work as a pastor, but to say, you know, for 24 hours, I want to just rest and experience the rest of God 
um, that you know God demonstrates in the act of creation. There's certainly parts of the Hebrew tradition, the Jewish tradition that I depend on and cling to. Now, some of that for me has been interpreted, and so it feels like it's a Christian thing, but obviously it has roots in the Jewish faith. And other parts of it are more me thinking, well, how did Jesus think as a person that was living in a time of Roman oppression and Roman occupation? So Jesus was familiar with the kind of oppression, with the kind of hardship, with the kind of living on the underside that's been very familiar to the Jewish people you know, throughout centuries and millennia. Um, I feel like that really shapes my faith too. And one of the things that really informs me is, um, yeah, what is Jesus? What is Jesus' relationship to the world as someone that's not a majority person? And I answer that kind of in a number of ways. One, because Jesus, I believe, is living life as God, and that's obviously not a majority experience. But then also, as a Jewish person under Roman occupation, in what ways does Jesus is Jesus shaped by that that experience of oppression, that experience of hardship, and how does he live day by day? Uh, through that and persevering. That's another way I think I'm close to that story and I've always found resonance with the Jewish story, not to mention the fact that I'm black and that has a lot of resonance as well, um, but certainly looking at Jesus as someone that's not a majority person but is living as the minority and more than minority living under oppression. Like There's uh, um, similarities there. Josh, do you consider evangelical Christian beliefs not only sharing a religion, but also a culture of other similarities that extend beyond belief in religious texts? Is there a cultural evangelical Christianity? Uh, so I think the answer certainly has to be yes. Like, yes, there is. But it's maybe different than you might think. One is, I think when we think of even evangelical Christianity, in America at least, I think we think of whiteness we think of maybe a, a youth culture or maybe a moral culture. Uh, maybe we think of the religious right, conservative politics. Um, so in that sense, yes, there's something that calls to mind. But if you're just asking a question about evangelical Christianity, there's versions of evangelical Christianity in India, in Uganda, in Argentina. And I'm sure that those versions of it are shaped by their own ethnic and national culture. And so Yes, there is. And certainly if you go to maybe any 30 or 40 something was raised in an evangelical church, they talked about certain praise songs or maybe a camp they went to. But as someone who's black, um, some of that would be not familiar to me because that wasn't really my tradition growing up. That wasn't something I knew about it, but it wasn't exactly how I inhabited um, yeah, this tradition of evangelical Christianity. So yes, it's a culture but the culture shaped by more uh, local ways of being, whether that's through your ethnicity, your nationality, um, and even kind of what church you go to. If you went to a mega church versus a small mom and pop church, it's evangelical. Even that's a very different experience. But certainly there's aspects of it that have its own culture. Now that gets into how religion affects our political lives. And I'd be interested in both of you taking the question as to how your religion has informed or shaped your political beliefs. In other words, what does it mean for you to be a Christian or a Jew in the Trump era? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll start, but please interrupt, Josh. Mm. Uh, it's a Jewish thing to do. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't know if I have any political beliefs that I can identify, but I, I do know that I think truth is a precious uh, phenomenon. And uh, truth is always, I think, in jeopardy inside of political context. Politician is not primarily interested in truth. Uh, politics is an art of rhetoric, persuasion, sometimes domination and subjection, uh, subjugation. Um, but the role of truth 
is is absolutely critical to me. Hence, when I hear a political leader who baldly lies, um, I recognize that there is something wrong here. Now, I, I see there is a political tradition. Jesus is not a political figure per se. He renounces this world. Um, but there is a Jewish political tradition. that We had kings. In fact, the, name, the word Messiah means anointed one, and the person who was anointed in biblical Israel, we're talking 3,000 years ago, was, of course, the king anointed by the prophet. And, in fact, uh, Christ was uh, construed in, in, in his own time as, quote, king of the Jews, mm-hmm. um, i.e., if you were a messiah, you were the king. And he had, of course, to teach another notion of a spiritual kingdom within. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, uh, the king is subject to the Torah, as is every Jew. The king must follow laws. The king is not impeachable, but the king is held responsible uh, for uh, his behavior before God, and that gives birth to the prophetic tradition. So the prophet is the one who, it doesn't say these words in the Hebrew Bible, but it's effectively there, the one who speaks truth to power. Mm-hmm. So the re- job of the religious person is to not to submit to power, not to be bamboozled by it, but to speak the truth, and uh, and I think to resist Political oppression. That's the story of the Exodus, which is important to African Americans and Jews mm-hmm. uh, in in uh, very parallel ways. That um, that uh, that that kind of oppression, domination, and subjugation of the human being is unacceptable. We're all created in the image of God, and that creates a radical politics. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the universal thrust of Judaism. There's also, of course, a particularist thrust, and they are in tension inside of uh, the culture that, that I live in. That's a starting blow. Back at you, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's great, and I love that response about truth because if you remain committed to truth, the question is like, what future will you really have in politics? <laughs> and also, how do you become a person that engages the politics if you are going to care about truth and care about its manifestation? And I'll kind of bring a similar thing that complicates politics. Uh, at least to me, is the notion of sacrifice. That I think in both of our faiths, there's this uh, uh, tendency about how can you willingly motivate a group of people to sacrifice? I think that's the job of the prophets, the job of a, a good king, is how can you teach a people to actually go beyond their love of self, even beyond their love of family, to sacrifice for someone else? And so if you think about something like national security, well, what's a position of national security that actually has sacrifice as as at its heart as opposed to protection so even then this is not about the trump era this is about just what does it mean to have a government what does it mean to have uh, a national leader that would say it's our security interest first and maybe this is why we shouldn't combine these two things because they become kind of dangerous when you do um but something about the the love in jesus to sacrifice his own life to take violence onto his own body through the cross and then to of course you know have this miracle happen of the resurrection well embodied in that is choosing death and choosing sacrifice, choosing suffering. And so any politician, um, think about how politicians try so hard to get a second term. That's not usually someone that you're going to say, can you show me what self-sacrifice looks like? Because they're already trying you know, to game four more years out of the system. And so I think a person of faith, especially someone whose faith has sacrifice at its heart, at its core, they're always going to find themselves at odds with someone that's uh, perhaps necessarily trying to gain more power, whether that's looking like political power in someone's first term or, you know, in something like the American presidency, trying to fight for those next four years. Um, So I really feel like I can't depend on a president to model what sacrifice is for me, but rather I get that from my faith. And that almost always puts me at odds with something like a governmental leader um, because it's not about 
um, sacrifice at the end of the day it's about amassing more power perhaps for an end that i might have some uh, similarities with or some compassion for but even the way itself isn't usually the way of jesus the way of my faith josh as an african-american how much would you say race affects your political beliefs compared to religion and being mm. in the racial minority yet with christianity being a religious majority those are great questions. Those are questions I've pondered uh, a lot of my life. Uh, now, being black for me is a way I see the world. Um, so it's not just my skin color. It's not just a group I belong to, but it's a kind of sight I have. And scholar and philosopher W.E.B. Du Bois called it uh, a veil, uh, this kind of double consciousness that a black American has to see things in one way, but then because of our blackness to see things in another. And I actually think faith uh, for me, operates in a similar way. Jesus operates as a person on the earth, but then has this kind of spiritual way of seeing things, um, like the rabbi mentioned, kind of like a spiritual kingdom. So in a very similar way, I have a view of my life that has different layers and different lenses. Um, but I would say that what I've tried to do over the course of my life is not have a black way of viewing the world and then a Christian way, but to really ask Jesus to integrate those things for me. And part of how I've seen that is what I was talking about earlier, seeing that Jesus himself is a person with an ethnicity, He's a person that has a faith, and that faith and that ethnicity wasn't the majority of his time in terms of living under Roman occupation. And so in the same way that my blackness uh, allows me to see a certain perspective, I identify with Jesus in the way that he saw differently because of his culture, but also because of his commitment to God. And I uh, try to follow that path and try to think about that. And so there's a lot of times where I think I'm read out of evangelical Christianity simply because of my race, um, that people would never consider me to be, you know, an evangelical. And we've talked about this before, I think, on this show, that when, I'm pretty sure this is still true, in most polls, a black person is never asked if they're evangelical. Mm. They're asked if they're a churchgoer. You know, uh, Latinos would be the same way. I'm pretty sure Asians would be the same way. But if you're white, then you're asked, are you Christian? And if you are Christian, are you evangelical? Mm. So... So many times I'm read out of being Christian altogether simply because of my skin color. And so oftentimes um, I have to provide my own sense of what following Jesus looks like um, as opposed to believing in a religious tradition or like a kind of white American evangelical Christianity that many times doesn't include me as part of its story. Um, yeah. No, James, as a white male, do you feel race plays an equally prominent role in your beliefs compared to religion, noting while being in the racial majority, you are in a religious minority? Uh, thank you for that. Thank you for that. What you spoke about was edifying to me, Josh. Thank you. I'd Welcome. like to talk more with you about that. Um, I think that um, um, I'm very aware and I've always been aware. My family, my father's side of the family came over to this country just the beginning of the 20th century. Your family mm. was here hundreds of years before me. Mm. My mother's family came in the uh, mid-19th century. Um, I was aware of the fact that there were black people, that mm. I was white, and I had all the privileges that whites had, minus the, the, uh, the lifting stigma of being a Jew. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in the 1960s where uh, the gates were opening to Jewish girls and boys to go places that their parents could not have gone. Um, so white privilege... I'm very aware of having and, the, uh, and all that accompanies that in this culture. Now go to Israel. I lived in Israel for eight years. I served in that army. There I was a member of the majority culture, 
And the majority culture was not only Jewish, it was white. We had black Jews, of course, and, mm-hmm. and, and Jews of varying skin colors from uh, Saudi Arabia, the Saudi, what do you call it, the peninsula, Yemen and so forth, and Moroccan mm-hmm. Jews. So, so Jews of all different, and, and Jews from Asia as well, Chinese Jews and others. So the Jewish people is not uniform, but there's a majority. It is Ashkenazi, and it is white, and it looks like me. Mm-hmm. So I've tasted that, and I see that this is a culture, and I love the state of Israel. I also regard it as teetering on the edge of racism, xenophobia, and a nasty, cruel oppression. It is not a happy place uh, for to be an Arab. It's not a happy place. It's an okay place to be a Christian if you're white. Mm. It's not, you know, the Ethiopians are learning to find their way in that culture, but there is still racism. So the Jews are immune to all of the evils of everybody else, even though some of us are... Uh, you know, some blacks can, in, oh, whatever. I can't even complete the thought. But mm. race is absolutely central to my self-understanding and my vision of the world. And, uh, and it seems to me one of the responsibilities of being a Jew is to diagnose it, see it, and work for the healing of it. That's a responsibility. And mm. that's the meaning of we're all created in the image of God, you know. So it's not about being colorblind, whatever that would mean. It was an old term in the 60s. It's about um, recognizing myself in the other. It's recognizing... Christianity offers Christ. We're all one in Christ, but mm-hmm. not all of us believe in Christ. So that's yeah. not good enough. Mm-hmm. But we are all one. Yeah. How do we assert the oneness of humanity? That may be the goal of both of our religious mm-hmm. traditions and our individual lives. We mm-hmm. are one. And so uh, uh, to assert that not as a metaphysical truth, but to live it on a daily level is what it is to be who we are. Yeah, I find that... Um, these days, one of the things I keep coming back to more and more when I think about my faith in questions like this is the fact that we're all image bearers of God. That's something that we get in, in Genesis. So many faiths share that's, that same kind of belief that we're created in the image of God, and that means that we walk as image bearers, and there's something we can learn about who God is. And sometimes you know, we ascribe this only to our particular faith tradition that we can only learn from people who share the same kinds of principles. And obviously there's diversity even in our faiths, but I love thinking about even people outside of my faith tradition, people who are different color skin that I am, ethnicity, that they're still image bearers of God and I can learn something from them. And actually there might be things that are crucial to learning that I couldn't learn from someone uh, of my own ethnicity, of my own faith background. And I think in my time that I've spent with different communities, the time I spent in Israel, I was there for a summer working with Ethiopian Jews. Hmm. Um, I, I learned things that I feel like I couldn't have learned from my own tradition. And I feel like we get that from God's big plan of I'm going to put more of myself in people by creating people um, and creating them to be like me in certain ways. Now to our faithful listeners, this is WNHH 103.5 FM, and we're talking with Josh Williams, lead pastor at the Elm City Vineyard Church, and James Ponette, the former Jewish chaplain at Yale. Studies indicate that religion does play a role in politics. A 2014 Pew Research Center study reported that 7 in 10 U.S. Mormons identify with the Republican Party. A 2013 Pew Research Center report said, Jews are among the most strongly liberal Democratic group in U.S. politics. There are more than twice as many self-identified Jewish liberals as conservatives, while among the general public, this balance is nearly reversed. In addition, about 7 in 10 Jews identify with or lean toward the Democratic Party. Jews are more supportive of President Barack Obama than are most other religious groups. Can you comment on this, Rabbi Ponette, and do you feel these liberal views stem more from 
Jewish history than religious text, or is it a combination of both? I would say that history for Jews, as I understand it, is a text mm. to be read and interpreted. And one of the interpretive moves of being slaves, we're obligated to see ourselves as if we were slaves in Egypt who were liberated. What mm -hmm. a weird burden to place upon uh, uh, you know, an historical tradition. Mm -hmm. Every Sabbath when I lift the wine cup, I say, this day is a memorial to the creation of the world and to my going out of Egypt where I was enslaved. So the tradition says, why, do you, why must I must remember that I was a slave in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Why? Because my present circumstances may not express so clearly the oppression that I actually do continue to live under, psycho-spiritual oppression. But um, uh, I must remember because there still are enslaved and oppressed people in our world, and I know their pain, mm -hmm. and I have a responsibility to them. So to use your history as a vehicle for moral action is the quintessential expression. Now, even though I said there's no essence, but I'm always tempted to say <laughs> there is. That's what it is for me to be a Jew. So um, now, do all American Jews that voted for Barack Obama uh, and who maintained, even though many of us have fallen into what I consider to be a, a, a camp that is devoid of... Uh, that it's focused on self-interest, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you, you spoke, Josh, like someone who's outside of politics. You know, Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, mm -hmm. right? But then, of course, the Roman Empire took over your church, mm -hmm. and that church committed all the crimes that you yourself mm -hmm. suffered in. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, so when, when you arm Jesus, who renounced arms, he can become as, as cruel as anybody. Same thing with exactly. the Jews. A disarm, yeah. So, uh, so, um, uh, the reason we voted for Barack Obama in such number, the reason most of us are Democrats still, in spite, you know, the old joke was you, you earn like Episcopalians, but you vote like, uh, you know, like Puerto Ricans or something like mm. that, meaning that um, you know, you're, you're wealthy, but you still recognize. Why is that? And I think that there is a, you know, there's a crude answer, too, which is right, which is that historically um, we as a minority in countries found that the federal system, the national system, Having, having access to the, to, the, to the top, the king, the ruler, having political favor there gave us a better shot at surviving. So uh, the recognition that uh, uh, our, our self-interest resides with the state, of course we paid a terrible price for that as well. German Jews believed in the reality of the state, uh, and uh, that would be part of it. I prefer to think, of course, that it's more the... Uh, the uh, the historical answer based on a reading of our own deepest intuitions. We know what it's like to be oppressed. We cannot forget. Um, alas, we honor that in the breach, but not with our voting. So I don't think I've adequately answered that. Maybe we should, I should defer to a political scientist. <laughs> well, Joel Baden, a professor of the Hebrew Bible at Yale Divinity School, has applied religion to the Trump administration's ban on refugees and immigrants from six Muslim-majority countries. In a February 10th Washington Post article, Professor Baden wrote, the Bible consistently spells out that it is the responsibility of the citizen to ensure that the immigrant, the stranger, the refugee is respected, welcomed, and cared for. It is what God wants us to do, but it also recognizes that we too were immigrants, and immigrants we remain. Like my forebears, I am an alien resident with you, says Psalm 39. Professor Baden wrote that uh, what the Bible says about immigration is not just a matter of historical record, but should inform us today. Can you both comment on this? I'll defer to you, Josh. I think that it should refer to us today. Um, and it's exactly what the rabbi was saying with thinking about our past, our historical memory. 
if we belong tradition that had people that were enslaved and then were freed, people that were wanderers and then found a place, people that were outside of family then found family, we should have compassion for anyone that's in that same circumstance. And what we've seen, even more than probably policies from different kinds of parties and people, is in some ways just a lack of recognition in any way for the human experience of wanting a home, wanting a family, wanting a land, and being outside of that, being uh, far apart, being distant. And what I see in my faith tradition is one that speaks about that in the very practical way of uh, clearly you you love the stranger, you, you love the immigrant, you welcome them, but also a deeper recognition that that's what we're all after. That's what we're all longing for is to be a part of a larger community, to be uh, intimate where we were estranged. And I believe that that should affect our politics, that, that should affect um, real policies on the ground. Um, but, you know, as I think Baden uh, found out that a lot of people think differently than that, even though it's pretty plain in scripture. I, I would say the tragedy of the human condition that we uh, share is that people who should think a certain way um, don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, but you already see this in the, in the biblical text, the prophetic text that he's citing mm-hmm. are actually the prophet criticizing the king saying, Hey, you think I want your ritual sacrifices? I want you to feed the hungry. I want you to clothe the naked. And I want you to be generous to the stranger, the orphan, the widow. I mm-hmm. want you to open your heart. But he's saying that to people that are shut down, looking out for their own interests, scared, scared. So human fear is so deep. And what we won't do when we are afraid and how comforting it is to say, you know, the problem is the Jews. They have poisoned humanity. There's a great comfort that Germans derive from going wild with that during World War II. There's a comfort that we still have, and Jews do it as well in Israel. You know, everybody is... Everybody is susceptible to this uh, flight into a false solution to the human dilemma of our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about is facing the death and facing the suffering, and how do you do that? And in some sense, I think we agree, it's our faith, such mm-hmm. as it is, that enables us not to deny death and not to deny the suffering of the other. So the compassion that I'm capable of feeling for someone who is so radically different from me speaks a different language, wears a different skin, has a different history, has to do with uh, the courage to love. Mm-hmm. And, and since it takes courage to love, you know, we need to bolster that. And mm-hmm. I think that's what we're both talking about. Mm-hmm. And this administration, to be bold about it uh, and bold about it, um, you know, is, is showing us, uh, it's sanctifying our fears. Mm-hmm. It's building walls and shutting down trust and uh, and filled with lies, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it does so in the name of safety, in the name of our well-being. So uh, I understand the claim of that. If we, in fact, my inability to understand the claim of that would make me a worse American than I already am, because, Mm -hmm. you know, they weren't the majority that voted the other way, uh, but they were a good number of our fellow American citizens, filled with fear and terror in this age of, that we perceive as an age of terror. So, Mm -hmm. So to be a teacher of love in an age of terror... I share that one with you, my brother. Yeah. yeah. So, Pastor Williams, in that same article, Baden was rebutting Jerry Falwell and evangelical Franklin Graham, who have argued that immigration is not a biblical issue. In terms of the evangelical reputation, you addressed this a little bit, and you touched on it in our earlier conversation, mm. but is your religion unfairly widely characterized? Uh, that's a, a difficult question. It's one that I'm not particularly invested in all the time 
like I said, uh, I'm often read out of that same tradition. So I think uh, there's a lot of times that certain people uh, with what they say, they are definitely held to account. And it certainly is fair. Um, I think anytime you universalize something and say, well, that's the perspective of all evangelicals. Well, again, I think you just have to think, I mean, in the simplest terms about Latino evangelicals definitely think differently, but they're often not the ones that are asked. They're often not the ones that are talked to, but it's these kind of standard bearers that are, uh, maybe their fax numbers are just uh, blasted a little bit louder than everyone else's in terms of Falwell and these other people. Uh, but certainly there's a diversity of thought within the evangelical community and obviously in the Christian community too. Um, people definitely think differently. And so I'm not sure if it's that people are unfairly characterizing, but maybe they just need to think about there's other actors, other people that they can talk to besides the maybe old standard bearers of this faith tradition. That's a very insightful response because I was wondering how spokespeople like Franklin Graham and other evangelical groups get to speak for all evangelicals. And that could be with the idea of certain media biases or Mm -hmm. certain cultural biases where the majority gets more of the microphone and platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people that are willing to speak loudly, speak uh, boldly, maybe speak without uh, a level of nuance, they often get the microphone. But it's also who's given the microphone, Mm -hmm. not necessarily how the person is speaking. It's, uh, in a sense, a privilege in terms of biases of, I think, greater conditions. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And I think that is the responsibility of the media then to say, so if there's an issue of police violence, maybe... uh, that's when you know black folks, black pastors get handed the microphone, hmm. maybe on other issues like immigration, maybe on other issues like national security. Maybe we can continue this mic sharing with that as opposed to, I think what we usually see in the media, media, which is like a black issue would get a black microphone, a Latino issue would maybe get someone. But even in this case with immigration, you know, they talk to Falwell and to, uh, to Graham and not to Latinos who actually have a real robust living faith. Can we go through a few examples of some of the administration's recent actions that many of his core supporters see as successes as they fulfill promises he made while campaigning? And I'll ask you, as people who are dedicated to religion, to comment upon some of the more recent political acts through a religious lens. Mm-hmm. You, would you both be up for that? Sure. Okay. Yes. So President Trump and the Republican Party are pushing for replacing and repealing the Affordable Care Act. The Congressional Budget Office calculated that would result in 14 million people losing insurance next year and 24 million being without insurance in 2026. What do Judaism and Christianity say about this? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of different responses that you could have from the Christian tradition Um, I know someone like Reverend William Barber, who's part of the Moral Monday movement in North Carolina, would say health care is a right. And so to take it away from people, to let people go uninsured, um, that would be a scandal of conscience, a scandal of morality. And I think there he's talking about his own faith, but also thinking about, is there a soul of the nation? And if there is, how can it do this to its members? I think other people could say, you know, Christianity has different ways that you can believe uh, political philosophy can go. It can be liberal, it can be conservative. Um but at least show us a plan. And I think in some ways, part of what some Christians are talking about is let's actually work together um, with Republicans, uh, with Democrats, liberals and conservatives and see, can there be plans, even if they're from a different ideology than you're used to, than you like, that seem to work for the American people. 
And I think a number of people, whether they're Democrat, Republican, looked at this plan and saw this just doesn't work for for many philosophies. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's one Christian way of doing healthcare. Um, but I do think people would say at least let's do a good faith effort to get something on the table that seems workable by you know important people that are in the know. I think this plan seemed to fail that for a lot of folks. Ditto. Here, there's no there's no real significant distinction between the way we see present reality and the way our traditions would apply to it. When Trump revoked the 2014 fair pay and safe workplaces order that President Obama put into place to ensure that companies which contract with the federal government comply with labor and civil rights laws, including equal pay for women. Trump says that the change is to enhance business productivity, which will boost the economy where many more people will benefit. What would you say is the Jewish and evangelical Christian response? Well, just a minute, Betsy. Uh, uh, he implemented in this proposal changes that would improve civil rights. No, and he's, pay, he's no, he's, he's, un, revoking, he's undercutting that. Which he's Obama, revoking, yeah, yes, and yeah. with the argument of mm-hmm. economic stimulus. Right. So um, there's a there's a religion of the market, right? And uh, he's a partisan of that religion. <laughs> it's a tragic uh, view of the human being, who is a, a rational animal concerned only with self. Uh, uh, aggrandizement with the accumulation of wealth and power uh, and this is all sanctified according to this religious worldview and uh, capitalism has religious uh, dimensions to it Adam Smith one of the great uh, rhetorical founders of it understood that so uh, I think he tried to build in some critiques mostly they've collapsed and we see in this administration not only a collapse of the distinction between business consciousness capitalist consciousness and governing consciousness they're the same now uh, but we see also uh, an absence of any notion of transcendent responsibilities. Um, the, mark, the invisible hand of the market mechanism will take care of all. So I would say that our traditions, Josh's and mine, would call that a form of uh, idolatry. Uh, but that's just a pejorative term that we know how to use for systems that are mm-hmm. cruel to human beings, um, that subordinate human beings to the whim of, uh, uh, of uh, magic modes of accumulating wealth. Not to denigrate the importance of the accumulation of wealth, but wow. Mm. And I think one of the things about the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition is they're not afraid to warn in a prophetic sense. And so I I love that actually about the traditions that if something seems like it's against uh, what it means to be human or what it means to be flourishing, I think both traditions don't shy away from speaking prophetically, um, of engaging in prophetic acts that say, be careful. And sometimes there won't be a Christian or, dare I say, Jewish policy, to speak outside of my own tradition, uh, that looks like you know a real thing you could find on a website or on a piece of paper, but rather just be a warning of saying, do you really want to start making decisions only for money or making decisions for our economy that repeal things that are for real people for the sake of economic growth, thinking that growth itself, that just somehow having more, having more money, having an economy that's stronger, that will solve things. That's not always the case. Um, And again, that's now for me to walk something back. That's not me saying a strong economy isn't important. But for us to say there can be moral virtue in just having more money, that's not, uh, I think, something that's found in any of our scriptures. 
And I'm wondering if the Bible also addresses the state of the earth, the natural resources. Interior Secretary Ryan Zink is reviewing national monuments, public lands preserved for historic, cultural, scientific, or other purposes. The LA Times on April 27th posted photos of stunning public lands that are just breathtaking in their beauty. The review is to allow for corporate expansion, most likely in the areas of oil and gas, mining, and agriculture on these lands. Is there a biblical response? Uh, There are several, I think. This is just just popped into mind as you framed the question, and that is uh, there's a notion of a holy land, which is a biblical idea and developed in the post-biblical traditions as well. What makes a land holy? Um, the notion of uh, creating national parks goes back only to you know to Muir and to Teddy Roosevelt in this country. So it's essentially late 19th century um, and, ni- and early 20th century concept has something to do with Holy Land. What we're seeing contested in North Dakota in the name of oil and the part of uh, the tribes there is that their Holy Land, this country thinks and this administration believes and this economy justifies the desacralization of that land, the absolute dismissal of the of the holiness of that land for the sake of... So that metaphor is central to the understanding of the book of Deuteronomy regarding the status of the land of Israel. The land of Israel is God's country. You're a resident alien in it. You're a visitor. You're a tourist. So that attitude uh, is, of course, uh, one that was uh, not always accepted in biblical times, and it's still being contested dramatically in our time. You know, I'm sorry, because we only have about two minutes, I want to jump in and try to get a response to a couple of questions. Mm -hmm. In closing our conversation, I hope that you will share some insight to this, because I think there can be a little wariness about extremely devoutly religious people, because religion is such a mysterious and ineffable concept, and anyone who can be so 100% certain of their beliefs that they are right, for some can exacerbate skepticism. Do you think faith requires a certain amount of stubbornness and a willingness to jump a gap going beyond just facts? And in some ways, there's something wonderfully abstractly magical about that ability to have faith. But on the other hand, can it require a bit of closed-mindedness in adhering to certain beliefs? Uh, That's a great question. I don't think I would use the term closed-mindedness, though someone definitely could use that about me. But I think there has to be some kind of um, commitment that one makes um, that does involve saying yes to something and no to something else. And that's just what any commitment is. And so I think there is something that I, I think about my faith where I've chosen to see the world a certain way. I've chosen to you know, either go out on the water, to walk on uh, you know, a piece of land, whatever metaphor you want to use. And that means I've kind of gone farther away from something else. What I hope, though, and my bet is with my faith, with following Jesus, is it'll actually bring me closer to others. There's something about Jesus as a humanizer and faith as something that helps us be human and helps others be human that will bring me closer to people um, and to learn more about who they are, even if I'm doing so as someone that's following Jesus, not following anything else. You know, I'm out of time, but I'm just going to force this one last question. Um, That with Donald Trump's core supporters, recent polls indicate all but 2% say that they feel he is doing great and would vote for him again. And this strikes me somewhat as blind faith. And Mm. according to the news reports, a large swath of his supporters are fundamental Christians. And they are not 
going to stop believing in him. For example, he says repealing Obamacare will result in better, less expensive insurance, more choices for everybody. But the facts have not shown that to be the case. How much does such support relate to a similar psychology which underlies religious faith? I I think that it's the subtle distinction between idolatry and uh, monotheism. Um, That uh, God is not a reliable political leader. (laughs) Politics is human. God is the aspiration that we could become perfectly morally good. Jesus is as close an embodiment as I can imagine uh, in the human mode coming out of the traditions of love in both of our traditions. So uh, uh, the life that Jesus lived in love was a life with uncertainty. When I read the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus doesn't know who he is, Mm -hmm. who did they say I am? And people don't understand who he is. So living with that mystery, mystery in the full sense of not knowing, epistemological humility is a characteristic feature of the religious. The certainty that comes from the mouth of the incumbent president and from his followers is idolatrous. It is a certainty that is incompatible with the reality of God. Okay, we have one minute left. Josh, do you have any final comments on that? Yes. There's something that's, I think, wise to look at traditions that are millennial long and say, maybe I'm going to get inspiration and leadership from them. Uh, Back in 2000, I believe, Donald Trump was the host of a TV show called The Apprentice. I don't think anyone would know that he would be the president, right? And so people that are tying blind faith to him I wonder four years, eight years, where they'll go. My guess is they won't continue following Trumpism. But there's something about someone who's from the Jewish tradition, someone who's Christian, someone that's anchored themselves to ancient faith. Um, I think that's a pretty good bet, given that humans, all kinds of humans, have made that and said, this is what I want to anchor me to become a different kind of person, as opposed to a four-year cycle, whether it's Obama, Trump, Reagan, someone that is going to fade away. Um, I think ancient religions, sacred text. And this living experience of faith uh, provides a different kind of way of living wisely. Well, thank you, Josh Williams, Elm City Vineyard lead pastor, and James Ponette, Yale's first Jewish chaplain. And to our listeners, thank you for joining Law, Life, and Culture. I'm Betsy Kim.